Welcome to the Weight Solutions for Physicians podcast, the podcast that will help you find solutions for your weight concerns that will last a lifetime. Together, for you. Welcome to episode 43 of the Weight Solutions for Physicians podcast. I'm your host, Siobhan Key. I am a family physician and obesity medicine physician, and I am a weight loss coach for physicians who are trying to figure out their own weight struggles. If you're just joining us, uh, make sure that you go back and listen to the previous episodes on this podcast. This is episode 43, so there's a lot of information. If you're trying to figure out your own weight, I've got a lot of different episodes on low-carb approach to eating, but also a lot of different topics about working on your mindset around weight loss and how to actually get yourself to take the action consistently that you know you need to take to manage your weight and stay on a plan. Today, I'm super excited. I have an interview with Dr. Brett Schur, who is a cardiologist and the medical director of dietdoctor.com. He's also the host of the Diet Doctor uh, podcast. Uh, I enjoy listening to that podcast and find that he's a really balanced voice in, about the evidence in different aspects of lower carb eating and cardiovascular risk, which is why I wanted to have him on the show. And this interview is jam-packed with tips and information. So if you've been wondering how eating lower carb impacts cardiovascular health or how to troubleshoot some aspects such as uh, LDL levels on a lower carb diet, this interview is for you. There's so much information here. I found it fascinating to have a chance to sit down and chat with Dr. Sher. If you want more information about low carb eating, I really believe dietdoctor.com is the best website out there. There is so much good quality information. I love watching all the videos with different talks from different experts. Uh, and so check it out. There's also recipes and everything, but I really believe their value for me anyways is the information that they put out and the educational tools that they have there. And like always, when we're talking about specific medical topics, I think it's important to know that this podcast is for educational purposes only. It is not meant to replace medical advice for your specific condition, particularly talking about the cholesterol stuff. If you have questions about your cholesterol, you need to talk to your own physician. Uh, listening to this podcast does not constitute a physician-patient relationship with either myself or Dr. Schur. All right, let's get to the interview. All right. Welcome to the show, Dr. Sure. Thank you so much for joining me. Oh, it's my pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me, Siobhan. Oh, you're welcome. Uh, so this has been kind of a goal of mine on the podcast is to have somebody with cardiology background to sort of pick some of that knowledge because that's, as you know, when people are talking about lower carb stuff, that's often the biggest um, uh, like the sort of negative stuff that gets brought up is people worry about heart health if you're eating more fat. Right. Uh, but first, I was wondering, can you just give us a bit of your background and how you came to be interested in low carb and kind of got where you are? Yeah, sure. Um, you know, it certainly didn't start that way. I started in a preventive cardiology fellowship. It was sort of a combined preventive and general cardiology fellowship, and it was in an Ornish-style program. So that's how I was trained. So that's plant-based or... Plant-based yeah, and low-fat? Low um, very low-fat and predominantly plant-based. So it wasn't an official Ornish program, but it, it definitely was an Ornish-style program. Yeah, so low-fat, plant-based, but with all the other great things that come along with that, like stress management and social connections and exercise and smoking sensation and all the other 
important health, uh, health factors. Um, so that's how I was trained. And when I got into general cardiology practice, that's how I, you know, sort of hit the ground running. Um, but it, I guess it didn't take long to see in the real world that I wasn't having the impact I wanted to have or thought I should be having on patients. And, you know, I think a lot of doctors probably have similar experiences. You just say, oh, the patient was non-compliant with lifestyle. The patient just couldn't do the program. They didn't have enough willpower. They didn't try hard enough. Whatever, you know, whatever we tried to convince ourselves that, that it wasn't our fault, I guess, um, is one way to think about it. Um, so I did that for a number of years. And then finally I said, I, I can't take this anymore. I didn't, I didn't cut, get, you know, spend half my life training for this job so that I could not impact people in the way I wanted to and just see them get sicker and sicker and just try and put band-aids on problems. So, um, so I opened up a sort of like a small boutique wellness practice with a, with a good friend of mine who was this amazing health coach. But as it happened, he also had um, a background in ketosis and was, very knowledgeable about nutritional ketosis and helping clients with, with ketosis, but we didn't open it for that together for that purpose. We just really liked working together and liked helping people. And there were a couple particularly tough clients who said, why don't we try a ketogenic diet on this guy? And I looked at him like he had two heads and I said, what are you crazy? Like that's, I don't want to kill this guy. Why would I do that? You know? And to his credit, he just looked at me and said, well, I mean, have you looked into it? Have you um, investigated it? Do you know much about it? And I, and I had to be honest with him. And I said, no, I actually don't. I just know what I've been taught. I have zero experience with it. So I started, you know, started reading and Gary Tobbs and Nina Teicholtz, you know, sort of the, the books first and then thought, huh, maybe there's something to this. And then started looking into the medical literature and realized there actually was medical literature. And that was the part that like just blew my mind that there was literature from Finney and Volick and Westman and Yancey, like people had already published studies on this, but somehow it was never talked about in medical practice. So, so then we started trying it on a couple of the patients and, you know, had great success. And once you see that, you, you can't unsee it. So it was the, it was the trifecta of the, you know, the clinical experience, the research experience that existed, and then trying it on myself with the personal experience and seeing how this worked. And, and from then on, I was like, this, this is something that everybody needs to be talking about. doesn't mean everybody needs to try it. doesn't mean it's right for everybody. But my goodness, this has to be an option for every doctor to use in their, in their toolkit, so to speak, um, to help patients because it can be so powerful in the right situation. So, so that got me started down this path. And then I started incorporating it in my own practice. Um, then I, I opened up a sort of a health coaching business where I could work with people um, to impact them more greatly. And then that has led me to where I am now, where I'm the medical director at dietdoctor.com, the number one uh, online website for low carb and health, um, and still have a preventive cardiology practice as well. So it's sort of led me down this amazing path. And I'm so happy to be able to help people in this way to, you know, to reach millions of people through dietdoctor.com and through our podcast, and then also help people one-on-one -on -one through my preventive cardiology practice. So it's been an amazing journey to be sure. Yeah, that, that's amazing. Um, so it's interesting because like the standard cardiology stuff is still very focused on like even the most recent guidelines from American Heart and everything is still saying saturated fat is bad and mm -hmm. all that. How did you find it as a cardiologist to make such a drastic shift in your practice and what you were uh, doing with your patients? Yeah, great question. So the other thing that this whole process has taught me is not only the power of low carb, 
but the fallacy of, of how strong our evidence is. Mm-hmm. Because we're, we're taught that things are just the truth. Saturated fat is bad for your health. Saturated fat increases your risk of cancer and cardiovascular disease and death and is going to destroy your cholesterol. And that's what we're taught. But then when you actually look at the, the credibility of the science and you look at the quality of the science, you see that it, it just falls apart, really. And, and so that's the other part that I've really learned so much on is we're, we're basically taught the basics of, of um, science in general and almost nothing about nutritional science specifically. But as I've, I've dived deeper into this, I've seen that when you base things on these epidemiological studies where people are eating 50% of their calories from carbohydrates and there's no control for the quality of those carbohydrates and what else they're doing in their life and you can't control for unhealthy um, lifestyle habits that people have, you can't then take those results and generalize it to the whole population. Mm -hmm. So if you have somebody who is eating low carb and is otherwise taking good care of their health and prioritizes their health, they don't fall into those studies that have shown or that have reportedly shown that saturated fat is bad for your health. But even if they did, even if they did, when you have an epidemiological study with a hazard ratio of 1.1 or 1.2, that is such weak science. And most of the time, those results are proven to not be correct when examined in a randomized controlled trial. So we're basing these broad sweeping recommendations on such poor weak science that it's really problematic. And so that's one of the things my role at Diet Doctor is to really help push this evidence basing and not just to say a study shows this result, therefore case closed is evidence based, but to go the next step and say, what is the quality of that evidence? What are the strengths and weaknesses of that evidence? And how does that apply to people in the low carb world? And what we find time and time again, if you are following a healthy low carb diet and you're making improvements in your health, most of the evidence we have doesn't represent you. And so then we have to do our best judgment to say, well, what does this mean for you moving forward? And if we find people, you know, lowering their A1C, losing weight, reducing their inflammation, raising their HDL, reducing their triglycerides, feeling better, enjoying their life more, if all those things are check, 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 I'm going to need some pretty strong evidence to say this is harmful before I tell them to stop doing it. Yeah, which is a great point. And I, I really appreciate that aspect of you. Um, as you know, like in nutritional uh, evidence and what's reported in the media, everything is so polarized. Yeah. So, you know, there's often some bias behind it. And I think that's true for some of the low carb stuff too, where just like the other kind of nutritional bandwagons, people select what they're looking at. But I, I really appreciate listening to your podcast that you really do look at the evidence on both sides and what the quality is. And I think you're quite objective when you report it, which is nice. And like I was listening to your, um, I'm totally mind blanking on his name. It was one of your recent ones with uh, the neuroscientist. What, what's his name? The neuroscientist. Oh, the one about cholesterol and LDL? About, L- sorry? The one about cholesterol and LDL. Yeah, cholesterol. And, yeah David Diamond. Yeah. yeah, sorry. If, if he's listening, I apologize. I couldn't remember his name. <laughs> uh, anyways, but it was great because it was a really, uh, I think, a really balanced discussion of where the evidence is for LDL and all that. Uh, and I appreciate that as a physician listening. Yeah, well, I, I, thanks for saying that. I mean, it, the confirmational bias is is rampant in everybody and me too. And it's sometimes it's hard to to look inside and say, okay, where am I just kind of in my own echo chamber and believing what I want to believe. 
And sometimes it's uncomfortable to step out of that. But I think that's something we all have to do to really remain in, you know, have integrity both personally and scientifically. So yeah, it's what I try to do and I'm certainly not perfect. Nobody's perfect about it, but I appreciate those comments. So thank you. And so one just question with what you were saying, um, just a slight aside is, are there, like you said, somebody who's eating like a, a healthy diet and stuff doesn't, um, and doing well doesn't kind of fit the mold of the research showing saturated fat as being bad. So are there patient populations that you think saturated fat shouldn't like, or should be limited is probably the way to. Yeah. Interesting question. So, um, I mean, you could say if you are represented by these epidemiological studies, so you're eating 50% of your calories from carbohydrates, it's likely um, low quality carbohydrates with lots of, you know, simple sugars and refined carbohydrates, and you're not exercising much and you're metabolically unhealthy, then in those trials, the people who ate meat had a slightly higher risk um, than people who didn't eat meat. But I would counter that by saying, it's not the meat, it's all those other underlying issues. So don't worry about if you're eating meat or not first, fix the underlying issues, reduce the carbohydrates, increase the quality of your, of your food, lose the weight, reduce your inflammation, start exercising, quit smoking, start taking care of yourself. Those are far more important than just stopping eating meat. Because you could stop eating meat, stop eating meat, but still have all those other you know, negative health issues going on, you're not improving your health. You're not doing anything to improve your health in that setting. So although you could interpret the science saying you're better off not eating meat in that scenario, I would say that's not practical. The practical approach is you got to fix all those other problems first and don't worry about the meat. Yeah, like address the metabolic syndrome and all the other drivers that are underneath. Right, right. And to be fair, you can't address those in, in a vegetarian or vegan diet. It's certainly possible, you know. Mm -hmm. um, Neil Barnard uh, published a study uh, years ago looking at a low-fat vegan diet to treat patients with diabetes. And, you know, they lowered their A1C by, you know, like 0.3% and 30% of people were able to reduce their diabetes medication. So it's, it has an effect. But then you compare that to, you know, the low-carb data where the you, they've lowered the A1Cs by, you know, one and a half percent and 95% of people reduce or, or stop their medications. And, you know, that appears to be more effective. But if someone chooses to be vegan for other reasons, you know, it's still not like you can't have any benefit. There still can be benefit to metabolic health. It's, I just think it's more powerful for most people in a low carb with animal protein um, diet. Yeah. And then you could say, all right, so what about people who are APOE4? Um, if you're four slash four, then those people tend to have a higher LDL increase with saturated fat. So should they eliminate it? Well, I don't like to make broad sweeping recommendations just on genetics. I'd like to say, well, what happens to you um, when you do eat saturated fats and what happens when you don't eat saturated fats? You know, you have to compare the whole health picture, not just one genetic marker. Um, and I'm sure we're going to talk about the hyper-responders who get a rise in their LDL. So that's another question of what to do about that. Again, I don't make blanket statements that like if your LDL goes up, you got to get off your saturated fat. I say it's something we need to address, put in the context of your overall health um, and your overall lifestyle and see where we can go from there. Um, you know, I like to, in some of my talks, I talk about my, my kids. I, I have a six-year-old and he loves to play this game, Would You Rather? Right, he even has a book of all these would you rather. So he, you know, when I come home from work, he says, Daddy, Daddy, would you rather get eaten by a shark or get bitten 10 times by a rattlesnake? And I'm like, what are you talking about? The shark. The shark. <laughs> Always the shark. 
because <laughs> it's over real quick, right? And it doesn't involve a snake. <laughs> ah, you ever think about snakes? Yeah, I hate snakes. I hate snakes. But so it seems like sometimes we're in that, we, we feel like we're in that position as doctors. Do you want to have perfect cholesterol or do you want to improve your metabolic health and lose the weight and lower your blood pressure and feel better? Like it, it's a would you rather, but it doesn't always have to be, right? It doesn't always have to be that type of position. And when you're, but if you are in that position, it's not a clear cut answer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, um, so just like you mentioned, looking at people and saying, okay, how do you do when you're on saturated fat and not, do you base that on like following their lipids if they do a trial of saturated fat versus off? Or are you thinking more on like, how do you feel overall and what do the rest of your biomarkers do and what's your weight doing? Yes and yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, the whole picture. So, so you know, very common of the people I see in, in my cardiology practice is someone goes low carb. And they see all these benefits, but they get their blood test and their doctor says, you need to stop what you're doing right away because your LDL is now, you know, 180, 200, even 160, whatever, pick a number, it went up. Um, So the doctor says, you need to stop what you're doing and go on a stat right away. And the patient says, I don't want to do that. I'm having all these benefits and I've heard so many bad things about statins. So those are a lot of the people who come to me. And, And so we have this discussion time and time again. First is what are the benefits you got from being low carb? Why did you go on it, and what what are you seen by benefit? What have you seen by benefiting from it? And if the person says like, yeah, I didn't notice much. I don't feel that much different. I didn't lose weight. I don't, you know what? My metabolic markers didn't didn't improve. Then that's a very different conversation than somebody says, yeah, I, I lost forty pounds. I feel better. I can function better at work and physically. And my A one C went down, and my insulin went down, and you know, I just so many things have improved with my inflammation and my blood pressure. Like that's a very different conversation because then we say, okay, so the LDL is the isolated marker that went up, but your HDL went up, your triglycerides went down, your inflammation went down, your blood pressure went down. So we can use different risk calcula- calculators. You know, you can use the, um, the American College of Cardiology ASCVD 10-year risk calculator. And frequently we see that calculation that that percent risk for heart disease in 10 years go down despite the LDL going up. So that's pretty powerful to show people um, that there's more to it. You can get tests like calcium scores and then use a MESA risk calculator to show that the risk is still very low. Um, Now, there are some situations where people are either going to be concerned enough about it or they have a strong family history or all the other markers aren't perfect. Like they still have hypertension, they still have diabetes and inflammation that's maybe improving, but not, uh, not resolving as quickly as you would like, then I definitely have a discussion of, well, do we try a more monounsaturated based low carb diet, which means a ton of avocado and nuts and olive oil and olives, um, and less of the animal based products and see how you do. And I'd say probably 60 or 70%, they'll lower their LDL with that without too much of a a change in their HDL and triglycerides and other metabolic markers. It can be a very effective approach, but it's logistically challenging. I mean, you have to be pretty committed to stick to that kind of diet. And for those who are, wonderful. But I don't think I could do it. I've seen a lot of patients who, who don't want to do that. So that's part of it. You know, logistics is definitely part of it. Like how much time you have to spend thinking about food and preparing food and cooking food and shopping for food. And, you know, part of the wonderful thing about a low carb or keto diet is that becomes so much easier. You can eat twice a day. You know, what you're preparing is so much easier, I think. And you could say limited, someone would say limited. 
I don't think it's limited at all, but it's so much easier in terms of your choices. So, I mean, that's a benefit that a lot of people get and you don't want to undo that for some people. Yeah, exactly. And the patients I've had those conversations with about their LDL that is going up, um, I think, you know, partly too, when you've done low carb and you've been successful on it, it's often easier to be successful when you're really enjoying the food that you're eating. Yeah. And giving up all those, the, you know, the, the kind of treat foods on lower carb would be more of the saturated fat foods like the cheese based and all that. And giving that up then too is it's tough for people. Yeah. 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 And I guess one other thing I should mention about LDL is, you know, there's this, there's this faction, I guess you could say, or this group within the low carb movement that sort of says LDL is worthless. You don't even need to worry about it. Just ignore it. Um, you're better off with a high LDL. I'm, I'm not quite in that camp. Um, but because I, you know, the evidence is very strong that for those people studied um, and the people included in those trials, that higher LDL correlates with increased cardiovascular risk, especially for people in their 40s, 50s, um, and, you know, under 60. Um, but then the question becomes, were people, you know, eating low carb, living low carb lifestyles or with good metabolic health included in those trials? And when you try and control for HDL or triglyceride to HDL ratio as markers of metabolic health, all of a sudden that association with LDL and increased risk starts to diminish, if not go away completely. And we see that in the Framingham offspring. We see that in the Copenhagen men's study. Um, in terms of statins in the 4S trial, we see the benefit of statins uh, diminish and basically disappear with higher HDL. So we have to, again, put it into context. Um, mm -hmm. LDL is a very important cardiovascular marker. And in certain populations, it may mean less. doesn't mean it's completely meaningless. It may mean less in certain populations. So we always have to put that in perspective. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about the hyper-responders just while we're kind of on that LDL level. Mm -hmm. uh, so for people listening who you might not know what that means, do you want to start with kind of an explanation? Sure. So, so the first concept is, is um, the majority of the trials um, and scientific evidence show that if you go on a low-carb diet, your LDL does not go up. That's, that's the first place to start. Your HDL goes up, your triglycerides go down, your LDL or your ApoB generally does not change very much. But there is a subset of patients, um, and it's hard to estimate exactly what percentage because we don't have big studies on them, but estimated anywhere between 5 and 25% of people who do get a fairly dramatic rise in their LDL, and they're termed hyper-responders. It tends to be more common in people who are lean and more physically active. Um, so part of the theory being you have higher energy demands, you're being fueled by fat, um, so you need more fat carriers, so to speak, which would mean more VLDLs, which eventually get turned down to LDLs. So that's one theory. Um, so these patients get a dramatic rise in their LDL. Sometimes, you know, 160, 190, 250, even some people see some people above 300. Levels where um, it mimics what people are used to seeing with familial hypercholesterolemia, genetic dysfunction of the LDL receptors. Um, so... Now we have this population where, um, based on the evidence that we have in lipidology and cardiology, would say they are at dramatically high risk for cardiovascular disease at a young age. Um, but is there reason to believe that they could be different? And the answer is yes, there is reason to believe they could be different because they are generally very metabolically healthy. I mean, they're thin and physically active and have basically no insulin resistance, the majority of these people. Um, 
and I mentioned sort of that one of the theories of why it would be that way. So it's, it's elevated for a reason. And as long as you're still having high turnover of that LDL, a theory is it's not sticking around long enough to get glycated and oxidized and, and get into uh, vessel walls and cause problems. Most of these people have zero calcium scores. So, but do we know it's safe for 10, 15, 20 years down the road? No, we don't. So it's really sort of this awkward point to be in. And you can be in a couple of different camps. You can say, look, I need to do the best for this patient in front of me. And I don't have any evidence that this is safe for 20 years. So I need to treat them like everybody else. That's one camp. And that's perfectly reasonable. I don't fault anybody for, for doing that. The other camp is to say, well, you have all these benefits from going low carb. Um, so I don't want you to necessarily stop it. The drugs are certainly not perfect for treating LDL. That Every drug has potential side effects. Uh, so instead, I'm going to say this probably isn't a problem. And let's just monitor you. Let's get calcium scores. Let's get carotid intimate media thickness testing. Let's, um, let's check your advanced biomarkers and make sure everything falls in line. And then if we see anything to show you're at risk, okay, we'll react to it. In the absence of that, maybe we keep going. So those are sort of the two camps that you can be in. And I think there's great justification for either one. Um, and of course, a lot has to do with the patient and, and their wishes and their fears and um, how they're feeling in general. So, you know, it's, it's, it's what makes medicine interesting, right? We can't just open up a cookbook and know what to do. That's what this, in the one hand, why I hate these calculators and guidelines because they try to make things so formulaic. And instead, we have to really put it in perspective of the individual in front of us and look for patterns. Do they, do they belong to the populations that have been studied or not? And I think that's what makes it so interesting. Hmm. And when you're looking at lipids, are you doing NMRs, lipid studies? Yeah. I certainly try to do that as much as possible. Um, you know, when it comes to drug treatment, um, you know, the size and density of your LDL, the inflammatory components of your LDL, LP little a, those don't matter as much for drug treatment because they don't change much with drug treatment. But when it comes to lifestyle treatment, those are so important because those do change, those do change and you can see the beneficial effects from lifestyle therapy. So yeah, as, as much as possible from a, you know, financial side, insurance side, and um, I try to get NMRs, everybody needs an LP little a, you know, I'd love to check homocysteines to make sure those are in line. Um, and you know, sometimes amyloproxidase or LPPLA2, PLA which are markers of inflammation of your lipids. Um, I think those are all important to, to monitor. Now, do you need to check them every three months? You know, some people, if they're making dramatic changes, yes. But if you're on sort of a stable program, no, you don't need to check those every three months necessarily if things are stable and going well. And then also checking, you know, better markers of uh, metabolic function, not just a fasting glucose. You know, that's what... Mm -hmm most medical doctors think is, is the number one test for diabetes, prediabetes, metabolic syndrome, fasting glucose, which is, is the worst actually. So you should at least be checking hemoglobin A1Cs or fasting glucose and a fasting insulin. So you can calculate a HOMA IR to give you a better idea. Um, and then, you know, when my patients are able to get a continuous glucose monitor, that's the best. I mean, they have that that quality of information is fantastic because it, you know, in low carb, you can get this Dawn effect where your LD, where your sorry, your uh, fasting glucose goes up a little bit, but then it's just beautiful the rest of the day. So you need to know that you can't just react to the fasting glucose. So that's where a test like a CGM or um, equipment like a CGM can be so beneficial. 
Yeah. And so in Canada, it's hard for us to get NMRs. Like I think there's mm-hmm. one company that does it privately. Right. So what if somebody doesn't have access or can't afford an NMR, uh, is, do you use like the LP little a homocysteine, um, homo IR, those sorts of scores, or are there, would there be other things you would add to kind of get a little more information about what their cholesterol is actually doing? Yeah, so those are still important tests, but they're not necessarily substitutes for the NMR. Um, if you if you can't get an NMR or some determination of the size and density of the LDL, um, you you can use triglyceride to HDL ratio as a surrogate. It's not perfect, mm-hmm. but it's really good. That if you have a triglyceride to HDL ratio below one and a half, or certainly below one, chances are you don't have many small dense LDL. Um, if you can get an ApoB or an LDL particle count by itself without the full NMR, um, you know you can use that as well because what you you don't want um, sort of the high particle count with the with the lower cholesterol because that's going to suggest you have more of the smaller yeah, yeah. The smaller particles. So you can use little markers like that um, to kind of help estimate it. Sure. Yeah. Okay. Um, and so. Uh, the question of statins, do you, I know this is a loaded topic and could be a whole thing, but so are there patients that you do still ultimately use a statin on when you see? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. Certainly secondary prevention. I mean, I see a lot of people who've had heart attacks and stents and bypass surgery and look, you know, they've sort of already declared themselves that that is going to be their biggest risk. So you need, I, I feel we need to be as aggressive as possible to lower their risk. And statins can lower their risk anywhere from one to maybe 3% over a five-year period. You know, that's a real, that's a real benefit. So yeah, I absolutely will use statins in, in a number of those patients. And some now starting to use PCSK9 inhibitors and also sometimes Zetia in those patients, because I think lowering LDL is important for those patients. But, and here's the big caveat, not in isolation, right? So, you know, the busy doctor who's seeing a patient every five or 10 minutes is quick to write the statin prescription and doesn't have time to really go into everything else. But I think the company it keeps for the LDL is so important. So you can't just write the prescription and send them on their way. You still have to address lifestyle, metabolic health, blood pressure, inflammation. You still have to address all those other issues because- they're just as, if not more important than that statin prescription. Then when you talk about primary prevention, I use statins a lot less in primary prevention, but I still will in certain situations. And it usually has to do with a family history or you know, a familial hypercholesterolemia diagnosis um, or someone who's just most concerned about their cardiovascular risk. Um, so yeah, I mean, I definitely still use them, but I think you have to use them cautiously. And side effects are real. You know, muscle aches and weakness are real. Um, People say you can't put that on par with a heart attack, and that's true. They're very different things. But if those muscle aches change the quality of your life, so you're not exercising, you don't feel good, and we know if you don't feel good, you don't take as good care of yourself, I mean, it can be a spiral effect. So it's something you absolutely need to be aware of and address. And then there's, you know, can increase your risk of diabetes. So, you know, 5, 10, 15, 20 years down the road, what's that going to mean? So we have to monitor for that very closely. And the big concern for a lot of people is cognitive dysfunction, which is very tough to say one way or the other with solid evidence, but there's certainly enough evidence to suggest it could be an issue with statins. And that, for some people, that's a you know, fate worse than death. Um, if mm-hmm. you end up 
with Alzheimer's or even reports that ALS is more, you know, so that the absolute numbers are not high, but if the risk is high enough, you really have to factor that into the risk benefit equation. And again, you know, it's, it's the concept of personalized medicine. Now everybody's going to have different thoughts and different wishes and different risks. And you have to factor that in, not just an automatic statin prescription for everybody who's, who's got a, a LDL above 160 or even 190. And you can factor in calcium scores with that too, because there's a great study recently out of Walter Reed that showed if the calcium score was zero, there was no benefit to statin over 10 years. Um, and if the calcium score is between one and 100, you had to treat, oh goodness, what was it? 100 people for 10 years, I think it was, to save a heart attack. So it was I may have to, uh, I'm not 100% confident on that number now that I mentioned it, but it was a, a lot of people, there was a minimal benefit to a statin. I think, that was, I think that's right. There was a minimal benefit to a statin over 10 years in that population. So calcium score is a very powerful tool that we could and should be using in more people to help risk stratify them better. And so if somebody does have a higher calcium score, is there any evidence that dietary modification can improve the calcium score? or yeah. are we pretty much like evidence-wise left with is statins and medications. Yeah, great question. So the the I would refrain rephrase that question is yeah. um, do we want to reduce the calcium score? Oh, and okay. yeah. personally, I don't think reducing the calcium score is the goal because calcium doesn't hurt anybody, right? So the calcium is in the wall of the artery. What we want to prevent is the plaque getting in the middle of the artery, in the lumen of the artery because that's where it can start to impede blood flow or it can rupture and cause a heart attack. So the calcium in the wall of the artery is a marker that you're more likely to develop plaque in the middle of the artery, but it is not the same thing. So to me, the calcium score says you are at higher risk. But I don't care if we reduce your calcium score necessarily. I care that we prevent either progression or progression of the calcium score, or more importantly, we prevent plaque getting into the lumen of your artery. Um, so how do we do that? Well, sure. Diet and lifestyle is a big part of that. Now there are reports of people, you know, lowering their calcium score, reversing their calcium score with K2 and niacin and, and low carb, you know, they're, they're anecdotal reports at this point. Um, we need to see more solid evidence to see if that happens and if it's a good thing, right? Because what really matters are you reducing your risk of heart attack, stroke, and death. That's what, what really matters. Um, so, so I absolutely see people with high calcium scores and it's not always an automatic statin prescription, but it certainly makes it, you know, a little bit higher on the, on the discussion panel, but certainly it's still in my mind comes behind lifestyle modification, nutrition, exercise, smoking cessation, reducing inflammation, reducing metabolic syndrome, the things, you know, I keep mentioning over and over again, because I think mm -hmm. that's where the, the most important part is. Right. And when you talk about inflammation, what do you follow to watch inflammation levels? So CRP, high sensitivity CRP is sort of the basic. It's a very um, sensitive but nonspecific test. Is mm -hmm. that right? Yeah. yeah. So a lot of things can, can increase it. So if someone just had a hard interval workout, um, you don't want to check it. Someone has got a cold even, you don't want to check it. Um, because any of those things can can raise it. You want to get them at their baseline, healthy, healthy level. Um, the other things you can check are myeloperoxidase or um, LPPLA2 or oxidized LDL, because those are more specific for lipid inflammation. So the CRP is a more generalized body inflammation. 
Um, and then the others I mentioned are more lipid information, inflammation, you know, ferritin is an acute phase reactant can sometimes be elevated with, um, with inflammation. So I guess that's sort of my hierarchy, CRP first and then the lipid inflammatory markers and then maybe ferritin. Um, and then to be honest, the harder question is, well, what do you do if it's elevated? Mm -hmm. um, if it's low, it's an easy discussion. And if it's elevated, then you have to figure out why. And again, lifestyle is a big part of that, right? So environment, the junk you're putting into your body, and you have to clean up the diet for a lot of people, make sure they're getting adequate levels of sleep and stress management, um, and then make sure they don't have some smoldering either infection or autoimmune disease causing it. You know, gum disease is a big one. Um, and then some people might have an autoimmune condition causing it. So you do have to dig a little bit deeper. Um, and there's, if there's you know, a number of people where there's nothing obvious, we are left sort of scratching your heads a little bit to, you know, then you check, you might go down the road of heavy metal exposures or food sensitivities or things where we don't have great evidence for, but, you know, you want to really dig deep to find out why does this person have markers of chronic inflammation when they don't see anything obvious. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. Let's talk kind of along the same lines, cheat days. So. <laughs> You know, there was that report from, came out of uh, UBC, so British Columbia, where I am. And I don't believe it's been published, or I couldn't find it published, but where the researchers had had people on a low-carb diet and then gave them a 75-gram carb load and measured markers of inflammation and felt that they showed signs of blood vessel damage. Again, I couldn't, I tried to, before this interview, tried to find the actual paper to find out what that was they were looking at. And I couldn't. Yeah. So I'm wondering if it was just media reported, but what's well, your viewpoint on to be healthy with low carb? Do you have to be very consistent and very careful with low carb or where do you stand? Yeah. So I'm not sure if we're talking about the same article, but I wrote an article um, about a study that sounds very similar to that. That's on the diet doctor website. Um, it was a few months ago, I think that, yeah, that I wrote it's it. Probably the same one. Yeah. So probably the same one. Yeah, so what they found was there were these these like novel markers that were brand new to me um, that were sort of signs of, of vessel health um, that were, or vessel, I guess, damage or dishealth <laughs> that were up when people, that were up pretty high when people had a, a cheat day and a low carb. But when they used actual physiological measures of endothelial function, there was no difference, um, if I'm remembering it correctly. Um, Anybody who's interested, go to dietdoctor.com and search for that, and they'll, uh, they'll see the article there. But um, the way I interpreted it was it was very early science because these are brand new biomarkers that we don't know much about. Um, but um, the other thing is um, we sort of know already that people who, if they do a glucose tolerance test when they are low-carb, most people fail pretty, pretty miserably, that their glucose is going to spike. And the theory is your, your pancreas is sort of taking a break, right? Because your pancreas doesn't see glucose loads like that. So it doesn't, isn't prepared to pump out a high dose of insulin, right? This is um, all theory. Mm -hmm. But if that person sort of carb loads for a couple of days, eats more carbs for two or three days, and retakes the test, all of a sudden they get a dramatically different response. So not published data, but lots of clinical experience to suggest that. Um, so... Um, Going back to your question then, does that mean you have to be more vigilant when you're low carb to prevent these spikes? And I think we have to put it in perspective, right? If you're, 
Um, if you can be perfect and never have a cheat day, sure. I mean, that's the better way to go, right? But a lot of people don't live that way. Um, so what's the harm of a glucose spike, you know, one day every couple weeks? If the rest of the time your glucose is, you know, rock solid, perfect, and you have low insulin levels, is that dangerous? I think when you put it into perspective, um, probably not that dangerous, especially when you consider what most people are doing, eating, you know, five, six times a day, high carbohydrate foods where your glucose and insulin is spiking multiple times a day. If you're going to say, you know, again, the would you rather, the shark or the snake, in this case, I'm taking the snake. I'm taking the, the once every couple of weeks spike as opposed to the constant spike. So I think we sort of have to put that into, into perspective. And then, and then also, what are you cheating with? You know, 75 grams of a glucola drink is nasty. I mean, that is like so sweet and high carbohydrate. And I guess if you're going to cheat with a big bar of fudge or something, okay, maybe it's pretty, pretty close. But if you're going to cheat with something a little more moderate, then, you know, maybe you're not getting the same amount of, of spike as well. So I think it's an interesting thing to note, but I also think putting it into perspective is really important. Yeah. And it, like my viewpoint of just kind of common knowledge and working with people with obesity and, you know, binge eating and stuff is, you know, the, the people that are eating the North American diet are also, also having cheat days, right? Like the North American diet is not perfect, Yeah, but they are also having days where they eat large yeah. amounts of carbohydrate too. Right. Sure. And, sure. um, and so in my mind, like it has to, if it's the spike, it would have to be similar in my, like, that's just my kind of way my brain logic logicalates it. Well, I think to, I think to push back a little bit, I think the, the yeah. absolute um, spike might be lower. So they're still getting a spike, but if the absolute number is probably lower, but the starting point is also higher. So you're starting from a point of a higher glucose, right? So if you're low carb and your, your glucoses are running in the 80s and your insulins are two, and you spike up until you know, a glucose of maybe 160 or 170, that's a huge delta. But if you start, if you're starting at, you know, 110s and your insulin's at 25 and then you spike to 140 or 150, your deltas, maybe your delta's lower, but since you're starting at a higher point, it's still a worse scenario in my standpoint. And from my perspective, you want to say better or worse. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. It's interesting. um, Just there's so many like little aspects like this that probably in 10 years from now we'll have quite a different understanding of all this, right? Like there's so many yeah. aspects that just haven't been looked at yet. And continuous glucose monitors are going to be a game changer when they are routinely available um, and inexpensive for people to wear. And, you know, cause one of the comments I get from my patients who, who have them is it's such great feedback and it keeps you on track so much because when you see your glucose spike from that, you know, healthy whole grain or that oatmeal, that healthy oatmeal, and you see your glucose spike, you know you're still not insulin sensitive enough that you can start eating those carbs. And you say, okay, you know, that's how you learn. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas if you have like a bunch of sweet potato and all of a sudden it doesn't spike, you can say, okay, for me, you know, I have that feedback that now I can, I can eat that type of food and, and feel good about it. You know, that feedback is so important that that's so hard to get otherwise. So, you know, Apple keeps saying they're coming out with a non-invasive CGM. When that happens, I, I'm going to love it. But um, That'd be great. I had, I for the first time, I actually tried a continuous glucose monitor just last week. And it, yeah, it was fascinating to see what I was kind of playing with different foods to see what actually uh, yeah. changed my blood sugar. Um, 
but it, it died on me after five days. Oh no. <laughs> and That's I was crazy. like, oof. If I'd paid in Canada, I don't know what they are down there. In Canada, they're $89 for the two-week monitor. Okay. And so I was thinking if I was a patient who, like, it was a sample that was given to me, but if I was a patient who had paid $90, that would be, uh, I would not be happy with it dying on day yeah. five. And the problem is that, like, I mean, I, I, sometimes I don't like talking about certain brands because I don't get any money or represent this brand at all. But I think the Dexcom G6 is the best glucose, the continuous glucose monitor. It also happens to be the most expensive, um, which is challenging, especially since insurance doesn't cover it for most people. Um, but you know, there are ways to get it for less expensive, especially if you like, you have a Costco membership, you can get it for like $400 or something. And at least here in the U S so that's how I like to, have my patients try and get it. It's worth the Costco membership just to get the discount on the, on the CGM, I think. Um, especially if it's going to inform the way you live your life and help you make important changes. Nice. All right. I think those were all the questions I had, but are there any other points that you would want um, the listeners to know or things that we haven't covered that you feel are important to touch base on? Yeah. I mean, I think one of the, one of the most important points is to know where you can get reliable information. Um, and that's what I love about working with Diet Doctor and being part of their team right now. So I, I would encourage everybody to go to dietdoctor.com and familiarize yourself with the site because there's so much great information for patients. And now we're building out this whole section for physicians as well. Um, we have a CME course coming up. I'm not sure when this is going to launch, but a CME course that'll likely be available sometime like mid-October where physicians can get, um, you know, three, probably three credits of CME um, and really learn about um, implementing therapeutic carbohydrate restriction and low carb lifestyles. Um, so, and, and we're really making a push to make this the most trustworthy website. I think, I think it already is. And we're just trying to make it even better. Um, because we need to talk about quality of evidence. We need to talk about scope of evidence and where it's limited and where it's not um, and how we can use that to then impact the life of our patients. Because that's what we're trying to do, right? So much, we get so caught up sometimes, I use we in the general sense, we get so caught up in, in debates about, you know, mine's better than yours, my approach is better than yours, I, this is the right way, this is the wrong way. When really we're all trying to do the same thing, hopefully. We're all trying to just improve the patients in front of us. And I think this is a field that, even if you don't fully believe it, even if you're new to it, you need to explore it um, because it can be such a potent and powerful way to help people revitalize their health and their lives. Yeah. And I'd, you know, I'd second that, that if you, if anybody listening hasn't tried it, like the, the impact it can have on some patients, like again, it's variable, right? But like when you have that first patient where they take the advice, they go and implement it and all of a sudden you've got them off, you know, multiple medications and their insulin and they feel fantastic and everything else is good. Like it's so, so much more rewarding than just writing prescriptions. Yeah. And that's what I hear so much from physicians. Uh, I hear two things. One is I never thought you could take somebody off insulin or the diabetes medications. Like I've never done it my whole practice. And now I've done it in four patients in the past month, right? Like I hear that all the time. And then I also hear people get re-energized about their practice. Like, yeah. I mean, let's face it, you know, medicine's hard. The medicine community that we, the, the way our practices are structured can be really difficult and not always that enjoyable. And when you can see that you can impact people in such a new way and, and really help them improve their lives. That's, 
you know, selfishly, that's good for us as doctors because that helps us enjoy our jobs more. So, I mean, those are the things I hear a lot from doctors um, using low carb as a tool to help people. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to come on and chat with me. I found this super informative and I think lots of people listening will too. Great. And my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Where can people find you? Yeah. So, um, I'm, as I mentioned, I'm the medical director at Diet Doctor. So, dietdoctor.com. Um, I, you know, we have so much information on that website, a lot of which I've either medically. Awesome website. Thank you. Yeah. Um, and then lowcarbcardiologist.com um, is where you can learn more about working with me as, as a patient. I've sort of stopped updating the website in terms of information because now all my information material is going on Diet Doctor. But yeah, those are the best places. Awesome. Well, thanks again. All right. Thank you. All right. Wasn't that great? I really appreciated the opportunity to talk to Dr. Schur and appreciated him taking time out of his day to be interviewed for this podcast. I hope that answered a lot of your questions. If you have other questions or thoughts about this or any other topic related to weight or eating low carb or the mindset type uh, topics that we talk about, please send them to me. Uh, I'm right now planning out future episodes. And so the more that you send me information about things that you're interested in knowing more about, or areas that you feel you're still struggling in, uh, I can better direct the future episodes of this podcast so that they best address your needs. And so to make it work the best for you. So make sure you send me your questions, uh, things you're struggling with, and any other thoughts. The email is info at weightsolutionsforphysicians.ca. If you want to comment on this blog post, or sorry, this podcast episode, you can go to the blog post at weightsolutionsforphysicians.ca forward slash doctor dash sure, which is spelled S-C-H-E-R. And I'll put that in the show notes. All right, have a fantastic week, guys. We will talk to you later. Bye-bye. And now for a quick disclaimer, this podcast contains general education information on weight loss for physicians. I'm not providing medical advice and listening to this podcast does not create a physician-patient relationship. This podcast does not replace a need for consultation with a licensed professional and no information should be relied upon unless you have obtained specific advice or treatment from myself or another physician. Please review the terms and conditions located at www.weightsolutionsforphysicians.ca before continuing.